This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute. This is a special edition of the podcast and was recorded on June 18th, 2020. My name is Jill James, the Health and Safety Institute's Chief Safety Officer. Today, I'm joined by my friend and now perennial favorite to the podcast, Mark Catlin. Mark has been a a guest for episode 11 and also our special dedication episode to Dr. Eula Bingham. Mark is an industrial hygienist with MDC Consulting and Training in Maryland. Like many, Mark has been on the front lines throughout this pandemic, utilizing his talent, training, and expertise to protect essential workers. I've asked Mark here today to talk about what he's been up to these past months. So welcome back, Mark. Thank you, Joe. It's good to be here. Yeah, so pandemic, industrial hygienist, um, the work that you've been doing for your your life's work for now, what are you in your how many years? Have Almost you been at this 40 mark? years. Almost 40 yeah, years. Yeah. 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 So what has, what this, what has this pandemic been like for your, your career? What have you been up to? Well, I was, um, I, I was sort of semi-retired and, and doing some consulting work over the past 18 months. And, um, mm-hmm. and this has sort of, um, consulting work that I had scheduled to do in 2020 just simply vanished. Like, for many other folks because mm-hmm. you can't go on site anymore. We can't, we can't go out and do things in person. And, and what it's been replaced with is actually a, 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 a lot of assistance to uh, folks um, who are working in the, on the front lines at, at, with uh, uh, mostly in healthcare, but other areas and, you know, doing it via conference call and zoom and, hmm. and, and email. And so the, the work has really changed. I stay isolated in my, in my home because I'm at I'm at a uh, I'm in the high risk categories for for COVID-19 and mm-hmm. and so I'm staying isolated but but happy to be able to do work out of my home to try to help people that are working on the front lines and uh, and actually um, you know feeling like you know we're, we're actually making some progress and helping out so at least yeah. through this first wave and hopefully things will be better in the second wave and third wave until we have a vaccine. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, dealing with dealing with a crisis like we're dealing with now isn't something new to your career. You've responded to other crises um, in, in your career as well, correct? Yeah, I never planned this at all. But my 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 initial uh, sort of disaster response was in 1989 to the Exxon Valdez oil spill and the and the uh, and the health and safety issues around workers in that cleanup that massive yeah. cleanup of over 10,000 workers in Alaska. And so that was my first foray. And I, and at the time I thought maybe my last disaster, because those are, they're really hard and you're, you're, mm-hmm. no, you're, you're consumed throughout the disaster. It was, it was a good six or eight months during the Exxon Valdez oil spill. That was everything that I did. So, mm-hmm. uh, but then uh, it turns out I, uh, years later, I was um, working with the Service Employees International Union in DC and, and that union has lots of healthcare members, and then H1N1 hit. Hmm. And then suddenly we were in, in in the sort of, you know, what we thought was a pandemic then, uh, at least an epidemic, uh, for a good six months, and that was pretty all-consuming. And then and then a few, then five years later, um, the Ebola crisis hit. <laughs> and although we didn't see a lot of cases in the U.S., there was a huge amount of work to prepare and, and try to figure yeah. out how to deal with that from the healthcare industry. And, you know, so I thought that was like 
that was probably like the most intensive work I thought I would ever do. Because uh, the Ebola work was seven days a week, probably 18 hours a day yeah. uh, for six or eight weeks. It was pretty, you know, pretty exhausting. Mm -hmm. uh, but then now we're in the pandemic and this is a hundred times worse. And, you know, <sighs> and it affects everybody and everything. And Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to not having disasters in the future to work on. No kidding. I've, I've talked to more um, health and safety professionals who have said that they've never worked harder in their careers. And yeah. it's and it's so um, interesting to think about that. You know, you, you, you framed up and talking that you've been working from your home this whole time. And yeah. so have many of us, though many more have not. Um, but we're working, myself included, harder harder than we have in our careers um, from wherever, from whatever station we're doing that work from. Um, we're working really hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. thanks to all of you that are working full time and I'm on this and and you know and 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 this work is hard because it's I mean it, it, there's 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 an end point, but it's really uncertain. You know, we're looking at a year or more down the road probably before this really ends. Yeah. The you know the information is constantly changing. I mean, we we went through the initial phase and then we went through the lockdown and now we're not everybody locked down. Lots of people kept working and now we're back with reopening. So, uh, you know, there's lots of you know there's there's a fire hose of information, reports, and scientific studies that come out and and guidance that comes out and <laughs> you know and although a lot of the basic CDC guidance hasn't changed dramatically, like the CDC still says healthcare workers need respiratory protection. There's all yeah. sorts of caveats, you know, that if there's a shortage and if you can't get N95s, then all these other things that we never really seriously thought would take place are taking place. Like the, mm -hmm. the you know, using surgical masks instead of respirators and, tr and trying to act like that's okay. Or <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. the decontamination of N95, 50 cent respirators meant for single time use. And the idea that never we're gonna, thought. people are gonna yeah. wear these People are going to wear these, you know, full shift or multiple shifts, and then we're going to decon them, you know, multiple times and give them back to people. I mean, this these are things we never, never uh, right. expected to have to see, and I hope we get past it and never have to see it again. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. When Mark, when you and I were talking prior to to recording, you had mentioned that you really wanted to find a way to focus on something positive in this pandemic by way of your work and your contribution. And, um, and you, and you shared a couple of those things with me and you, you've started talking about it right now with regard to respirators. Yeah. Can you talk more about what you've discovered and what you've been working on with, in that regard? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's been a, a there's been a, a, a couple of key areas that I focused on and I, and I realized early on that it was so overwhelming with what was happening. And I was working primarily with, with, uh, healthcare organizations, um, it was so overwhelming. It was it was just too much, and so I realized I needed to sort of focus in on, on a smaller number of areas where I could focus and maybe have an impact. And so, yeah. um, so it turned out one of the one of the early things that I I had openings and I've continued to work on is, is the is the trying to trying to encourage healthcare organizations to switch from N95 respirators, which are in, both in short supply and have their own other sets of problems, but to switch to elastomeric reusable half-face respirators with P100 cartridges. And, um, and so I had, I, my, uh, I was part of, I've been advocating that for, you know, on and off for probably the last decade since H1N1. 
Hmm. And uh, without much success, you know, you know, when when it's not a when it's not a crisis, people aren't thinking about needing to switch types of respirators. But, yeah. um, but I, uh, but certainly now it's it's you know a more important issue, and we're looking at at uh, you know at this for a year or more. So you know, what can we do to help protect healthcare workers? And I was um, I presented in 2018. Um, for the Service Employees International Union, who I was the health and safety director at the time. And I presented at National Academy of Science meeting that was uh, assessing the possibility of elastomeric respirators for use in healthcare, either mm -hmm. in normal use or in surge uses like during a pandemic. And, yeah. and there was a report that came out, uh, you know, and the, the, panel, the panel did a really excellent report that came out um, just at, in, in early 2019 and it's now getting a lot of attention because we're in the middle of this pandemic. But the idea of, of using a respirator that you know, those of us in industrial hygiene, you know, that's been a standard respirator used in many work sites, both environmental work, construction, industrial work, you know, for mm -hmm. decades. But mm -hmm. in healthcare, it's only been used by a small number of, of healthcare systems. And, and mostly, you know, either healthcare systems weren't aware of it or they dismissed it as not something they needed to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, and Mark, luckily that's starting you... to change yeah. Mm -hmm. sorry yeah um for anyone who you know especially if anyone in healthcare is listening right now and they're not familiar with what an elastomeric respirator is can can you kind of draw a picture for people in their minds of what you're talking about in, yeah. in case they're not familiar yeah oh, sure so so um there these are a reusable type of respirator they're they're a face piece that covers the nose the nose and under the and the mouth and under the chin. So it figure it fits about half of your face, lower part of your face, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a it's a it's a rubberized or, or a polymer material, mm -hmm. um, and it has uh, filters or cartridges that are replaceable, mm -hmm. and and it and then it has a, a a harness so that it holds it tightly on your face and tightly against your skin so that you mm -hmm. can, so it protects you. And so these these are um, you these are. These cost between twenty and forty dollars, depending on where you buy them and how many you buy. The filters mm -hmm. are a couple dollars a piece, and you can get filters that are that are that are e equal to or better than the N95 filter that that is commonly used in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and these can be uh, cleaned and disinfected readily, and then re reused. The healthcare environment is pretty is is not a a, a really heavy-duty environment for how these are made. Uh, these are often made for industrial and construction use. And But in a healthcare environment, these will probably last a year, maybe more. The mm -hmm. filters would last at least a few months and maybe even more. Hmm. Uh, in, a, in a healthcare environment that's not dirty and dusty, you're only trying to capture the, the droplets that contain the virus particles out of the air. And yeah. so, so these are a type of respirator that if, if healthcare institutions would use them, they don't have to worry about stockpiles of N95s and supplies, and and then uh, you know not getting supplies, reusing you know the N95s over and over and over again, trying to decontaminate these again. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have to worry if they they don't need to worry uh, about uh, switching from one brand to another, and then you have to refit test everybody because everybody would have one respirator, and they could use that for an entire pandemic. So I've yeah. been really pushing that this could be this this would be a really reasonable solution to for the healthcare industry for this pandemic and beyond 
Yeah. Uh, but certainly during this pandemic, to get ready for the second wave and maybe third wave, and yeah. and help us protect healthcare workers and and stop the exposures that right we're seeing. I mean, and are they yeah. are they more comfortable to wear as well, Mark? Compared to an let's say N95, we've all been looking at pictures of people whose faces have been abraded from trying to get the N95s to fit and fit tightly on their faces, and yeah. they're yeah. you know working and sweating in them um, throughout their throughout their work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I generally try not to use the word. Um, comfortable with a respirator, okay. right? Okay, makes you know, sense. <laughs> anything you wear on your face for you know for half an hour or more, and the longer you wear it, you know the the, the more uncomfortable it is. But but I sure. think that the I don't think they're any more difficult to wear than the um, than the N95s. I think they're mm -hmm. there there's there's real advantages to them. I think the 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 harnesses and the way that they fit on the face is is better, and I think that it actually. It actually seals over a broader surface, so there's less pressure, I think, on the skin. Yeah. Um, they fit better, and and if you're wearing uh, these half mask elastomeric respirators, you can do a user seal check really readily on most of them, and so you know when you put it on as a worker that this is this is seated on your face right, and this mm -hmm. is protecting you. That's much harder to do on most of the N95s from right. my experience. Um, the P100 filters are what we used to call HEPA filters. They're actually better filters than the N95, which is, you know, the N95 is 95% filtration efficiency and the P100 is 99.97%. So it's a better mm. filter. Yeah. Um, they, you know, even though they're given the same uh, protection factor rating, which is a measure of how well they seal on the face, uh, I think most hygienists would agree that the half mask elastomeric respirator s s s seals on the face better than an N95. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel mm -hmm. much more comfortable with an N95 on to protect me against uh, uh, airborne hazards than I would an N95. Oh, you mean an elastomeric or, you're more comfortable with? Yeah, elastomeric. With. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, feel, I, I, it protects me better, I think. And, yep. you can, and if you do the qualitative fit test or the quantitative fit testing, you can see that the, the protection factor, the actual, uh, you know, protection of that respirator is is generally way higher than what you would mm -hmm. see with the uh, mm -hmm. when you do the quantitative fit testing on N95. Yeah. So and the fact that they're that they're reusable and that one one per worker would last the entire pandemic, the whole issue of supply problems and shortages, right. which is a which has been a huge problem. And I know a lot of healthcare industries I talk to, they're you know they have people that are doing nothing but on the phone all day long trying to find supply. Uh, yeah. You know, if we had these then that issue is not there. And those several mm -hmm. hospitals that are that have been using elastomerics, they're not facing supply issues like everybody else. They're able to focus on other issues of worker protection and, and getting the healthcare work done that they mm -hmm. for the care mm -hmm. they provide. So are the elastomerics um, readily available? Well they the one of the problems early on, you know, normally they're readily available, but what happens yeah. is many of these uh, many of the manufacturers make their elastomerics in Asia. And so mm -hmm. the same issue we had with <laughs> N95s and other respirators that are that are many of which are made in Asia, the supplies shut down. And but it wasn't shut down as I can see it because they were everybody wanted them. They were shut down because of the pandemic. And so those of factories course. have now opened up. And what I've been hearing uh, even just this week is that is that there seem to be ready supplies of elastomerics available. Maybe not all the all the manufacturers and all the brands. 
uh, and all the styles. But but if you want an elastomeric, what I'm hearing now is you can get elastomerics, and even by you know even even by a you know hundreds at a time, are are, are now available. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Mark, what has your experience been in terms of in terms of talking with um, with the healthcare uh, industry and and other industries? Have you have you been able to move the needle in your work and 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 share news of this kind of respirator as a as a as a better perhaps and as an alternative? Yeah. Well, it's it's been real mixed at this point. I've been. Uh, I, I mean, the um, there were there are a couple systems that have been using elastomerics actually for a long time. The, okay. the, the University of Maryland medical system they started using elastomerics after H1N1 when they started seeing possible supply problems with N95s, and they had a uh, they had a, a, a CIH Jim Chang who was the uh, had a lot of experience in other industries, and he convinced them apparently to use to try elastomerics. And so they've been using mm-hmm. elastomerics and N95s, but now they're, you know, they're using elastomerics and that helps them with their supply issues. Yeah. I've heard him speak. He was fabulous. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. he and, he and, um, uh, uh, there's a Dr. Stella Hines, who's a, who's a, a, mm-hmm. a physician and they've both been really strong advocates for the use of elastomerics and, and disinfecting and, other use issues, and and they've been very generous with with willing to go public and talk about why this is why they why they're doing this and encouraging others in healthcare yeah. to do it. The other place that's that that has done it actually never that a, a facility that never used N95s that started back in the late 1990s when when hospitals were switching to N were using N95s for tuberculosis, uh, they went right to elastomerics, and they were the uh, Texas Center for Infectious Disease, and they're in San Antonio. Hmm. And they're a really interesting facility. They're a state-run uh, infectious disease center. They mostly see uh, TB patients, and this has okay. been their history. And so they wow. have this they have this uh, campus on um, uh, in San Antonio, and so they have a lot of, of full-time patients who are there getting their TB treatments. But they also do other infectious diseases, and they've been seeing COVID pa- COVID nineteen patients okay. and. They started off. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go down and visit. And they were they were also incredibly generous about talking about their experience, and 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 I was able to visit their campus and meet them and and tour what they were doing. And mm-hmm. so they um, they said they never that they never started with N95s, and their issue was cost. They said when we started looking at how often because <laughs> we were our all of our staff are in daily contact with our TB patients, so they would be using lots of. N95s, and they said the cost seemed so large that we we found elastomerics, and and that we it was mostly a cost issue. But they said once we started to use them, that we found that they were so much better, and and to use, and the worker protection was better that we've never looked back. Yeah, and interesting. And, and they've encouraged other facilities to switch, and without a lot of success until recently. Now with the pandemic, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but those two institutions have been incredibly generous with, with, uh, with both on the National Academy of Science um, uh, panel review of elastomerics and since, and especially during the pandemic, generous about sharing their experience and giving advice on what they think other people might do. And there's been a number of healthcare systems that are with the shortages have started to now talk to them and have started to look at using mm-hmm. um, elastomerics either on a pilot basis. And, and I worked with one hospital in Kentucky and they um, and and they were uh, happy to to try out and to pilot a mass elastomeric use in their um, 
in among their health and among their uh, nursing and physician staff that we're going to be doing intubations. Mm-hmm. And so that's a high risk procedure. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're close to the patient. There's lots of chance for the patient to cough and and so lots of potential exposure. And so they uh, and, and they were they weren't facing N95 shortages at the time, but they they said this looks like a better idea. And mm-hmm. so they uh, uh, they were able to I, I actually helped them get uh, get. A, a small supply of respirators by talking to a, uh, a an environmental contractor that worked with the asbestos <laughs> workers union that I that I knew people at, and they uh, they were willing to donate you know a, a, a oh, bunch wow. of half masks to the hospital to help out, oh. and 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 it was funny because the contractor who was great the owner of the contractor, uh, he when I told him what I wanted he said he said well we've already donated N95s to the hospitals he said. We never had a mask for Elastomerics, and and I said, well, here's the here's a little short history about that. He goes, well, this makes a lot more sense. He says, this, mm-hmm. you know, we don't use N95s much in our work. We use Elastomerics as our bottom line respirator. Yeah. So it was really wonderful to connect those people together, and and so you know, the last I've heard, they were doing fine, and you know, I I hadn't heard that they had expanded to a larger group, but but since then, the um, the other hospital that I've um, done a little bit of work with is is uh, that I've helped with is um, uh, the Allegheny Health Network and, uh, around Pittsburgh, and they've mm-hmm. and they've actually switched. Uh, they're switching over to um, elastomeric half mass in the last uh, month or six weeks because of the shortage issues, and I yeah. believe MSA has their headquarters there, and MSA has been working with them to help help them do the transfer with supply. Over. Yeah, with, sure. And and so uh, and there's an article coming out that they that some of their uh, their medical folks have just written about the the experience of transferring over to Elastomerics and I haven't I haven't seen the public published article yet but it it mm-hmm. sounds like they have some really positive things to say about mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you know again being willing to share their experience of how they as a healthcare institution um, you know looked at this and how they've how they've adapted this you know some of the issues are how do you do proper cleaning and disinfecting both between patients and at the end of the shift. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. Yeah. What is the utility of that? What are people discovering works? Yeah. Well, it's it's uh you know I mean the the use of these half masks they can be easily cleaned, you know they can be easily cleaned at the end of the shift and and they can be dismantled. So the the key mm-hmm. is to is to take out and to to remove the cartridge, the filter, the P100 filter, because if that filter gets wet, then that filter's no good anymore. So you don't right. need to. You don't need to replace that filter all the time. And the filters, what you need are the filters that have a hard plastic case. Some filters have a, a covering that are designed to go over the filter. So if you have one of those, you can clean the case or the filter itself. You don't need to get the filter wet. And you mm-hmm. can clean that with disinfecting wipes that are commonly used in healthcare. Kind of like bleach wipes that you know yeah. all the rest of us use. Uh, and then you can just take the rest of the face piece and you can uh, you can you can wash it in soap and water, just standard soap mm-hmm. and water. And then mm-hmm. there's a bleach solution or other solutions to disinfect it in. And so uh, it's been shown in a number of studies, including the work at the University of Maryland, that these can be readily both both cleaned and and uh, disinfected so that you're not uh, you're not spreading, you know, you're you're not you're not spreading any infection by using yeah. it. Between patients, what they have is a is a multi-step process of using disinfecting wipes to wipe off the respirator so that um, 
you know, a healthcare worker wearing this between patients can can do a quick and dirty disinfecting, but it seems to yeah. be effective. It's it it stops this. It doesn't allow for spread mm -hmm. of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. uh, so it's not a hard thing that that you can train workers to do and that workers can easily do. And yeah. and then the the one of the big questions that comes up is is how do you handle the end of shift um, cleaning, disinfecting, and inspection? And so right. the Texas Center for Infectious Disease. They they make that an individual responsibility, and they provide the I was supplies. Just ask. And okay. Mm -hmm. And now now they're a smaller they're a smaller facility with with probably 150 staff, I recall, and so they make that part of they what they present the the respirator is, and it's what I've seen in my environmental construction work is is they they treat it as a tool that you as a worker get as part of your job, and mm -hmm. then you're trained to take care of it. You're given supplies and 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 the time to do it, and then. You know, because that's your respirator and it protects you. Most most of the time, people do a really top-notch job of taking care of it because you're the one who suffers if you don't. But right. but then they have at at the Texas Center they have they have in-house staff in their in their respiratory uh, division that does pulmonary function and other stuff uh, that they've become the respirator experts and they're readily available. Everybody knows who they are, and if you have any questions or issues, you go talk to them. And then mm -hmm. they help you. And if you need a new respirator, they'll get that for you. They do the fit testing. They do the medical evaluations and all that. So so that's their model that seems to work really well for them. The University mm -hmm. of Maryland Medical System, they have a they, they have workers clean the respirators in between patients, but at the end of the shift, then they collect these to a central point where they're cleaned and disinfected and inspected and put back together the next day. Sure. Probably similar to any other medical instruments that need to be cleaned. Right, right. And so, yeah. the, you know, those are kind of the two basic ways to, that when I talk to facilities, it's usually like, that's usually a big question is how do we do that? And, right. you know, that brings up issues of how does your workflow, how, you know, how much storage do you have? Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, one of the downsides. Staffing to staff, clean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that I think resonates with healthcare workers, when I talk to them about elastomerics, is they like the idea that they could get their own respirator and that they would take care of it themselves and that that's, they're the only one who puts it on their face. And yeah. so if you use the centralized method, it would be better if you had a way to ensure that those workers who, who turned the mask in got the same one back. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, if you've done a proper job of disinfecting cleaning, you don't need to do that. But what I found is workers often are much more favorable if they know it's their mask that they're putting in right. and they're not sharing masks between people. Yeah, it increases the comfort. Yeah. And and so if people aren't familiar with the fit testing that's required for those, um, can you walk through just a, a little bit about that, Mark, in terms of, you know, is, it, is this something an entity can do on their own if they have never done that before? Yeah, it's it's uh, the fit testing for an elastomeric is can be done exactly the same way as the fit testing for an N95. Okay. So there's there's a there's a, OSHA has a specific protocols that are required to be followed, and that's in the respirator standard. And there are there are qualitative methods where you where you test someone's fit to the respirator using a a, a test agent that they can smell and taste while they do a series of exercises. And, mm -hmm. and so you can do that. It's the same. It's the same protocol whether you're wearing an elastomeric or an N95. And so you can you can do that. And then there's also quantitative methods using a machine and a computer 
that, that actually measures the, the fit and the seal of the respirator on their face. And so um, port account is the, is the primary manufacturer that makes that. There's a, a negative pressure unit that, that's also available. But uh, so you can use either method, uh, but you can use mm -hmm. either method on, N, on an N95. But, um, mm -hmm. but my experience is the, the elastomerics are easier to fit test because they tend to fit people better. And, you know, there are, there are hospitals that have actually had problems with different uh, N95 styles where they, where they can't get a lot of their staff to fit because a lot of the staff are women and their faces are smaller. And, mm -hmm. it's, and, the, and the respirators are trying to fit them. The N95s are sort of designed for a male industrial workforce, and so they just don't <laughs> tend to fit as well. The, yeah. the elastomerics tend to have a much easier time fitting to the, you know, you might do, most people will fit on the first try with the first selection, and if not, usually the second try, most people will, will you'll be able to find a sure. smaller, larger size. So, Yeah, and they generally come in how many sizes, Mark? The elastomerics usually come in two or three sizes per each model, mm -hmm. so there's usually a small, medium, large, or a small, medium, and a medium, medium, small. Depends mm -hmm. on the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the main objection to these, the, the two major objections in healthcare that we saw at the National Academy of Science uh, uh, review was that uh, one was how they look, that they just looked weird to have these bigger face pieces on people's face. And they're usually in black and they look, sure. they look more imposing. And so, uh, you know, that was one objection that it would, it would put off patients. And, uh, uh, and that's sort of not an issue anymore, I don't think, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're in a pandemic and I don't think there's any question about whatever people have on their face. No one's going to raise a, a ruckus about that. Right. The other right. issue was was could you disinfect these so that you don't spread uh, infection yeah. through a facility? And I think we've been able to see with the work from from the Texas Center for Infectious Disease and the University of Maryland, and some of the, and NIOSH has done some work on this that that the that these things can be cleaned and disinfected and used in healthcare without becoming a source of infection. And especially when we're looking at the reuse of N95s or the extended use of N95s or the decon and reuse of N95s, I think this is a much better choice to protect yeah. healthcare workers. Um, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it sounds like the thing I'd want. Yeah. And you're seeing it being are you, are you seeing it being used in other industries as well to protect from the virus? I know you had mentioned it's it's very standard kind of respirator to be used in industrial settings, but um, outside of healthcare right now to protect um, from the virus. Who yeah. who else are you seeing use it? Well, I, I, using them. Yeah, as, as as places are opening back up, I think that um, you know I think we're st we're seeing the use of 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 uh, certainly in construction. I think it's it's still it's it's one that they can use. It's yeah in in building trades workers and and other mm -hmm. people that do building maintenance who probably historically mm -hmm. have used these respirators for lead prevention, protection, and asbestos work. You know this yeah. they can you know I, I i don't think they they realize early on that they could just use the same respirator and so it, it needs to be mentioned that this is a that yes. you don't need to go find n95 that you can use these and they're actually better mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and so i i suspect there's going to be other you know in, i haven't done a lot of work in industrial sites yet during the pandemic but i suspect lots of industrial sites could could get and use these yeah. could get and use these respirators because it would fit with other protections they would need to provide Anyway, right. right? Because right. we can't right. we can't forget about all the other uh, hazards that people, people face who on are their normal exposed job. and working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in healthcare, mm -hmm. we have to keep remembering that it's not just, you know, COVID nineteen is the focus, but we still have bloodborne pathogen issues and needle stick issues, and we have, 
safe patient handling problems and lifting and we, you know, back yeah. injuries and we have workplace violence, which is showing up in some places. So there's all these other issues that we have to deal with in a, you know, in a normal work are, are that much worse uh, now because everybody's focused in on, on the COVID-19. People are exhausted and tired. Work has changed. And so there's an unsettled, yeah. you know, there's lots of people that are unsettled in what they're doing. And so mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. you know, all these health and safety issues during disasters get worse in addition yeah, to amplified for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah so. Mark, I, I know that you've also been doing um, some work um, trying to raise awareness uh, on infectious disease standard and, and some, some work that California has been um, underway with for quite some time. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, thanks. That's so the, and so the other thing, uh, the other kind of work I've been doing that's been really feels like I'm doing something positive is, is work with, with healthcare organizations uh, in, in California and, and in California, Many people are not aware of this, but Cal California has a, a state OSHA plan. So they have, you know, they do their own enforcement, but they also can set their own standards. And, and mm -hmm. so federal OSHA doesn't currently have an infectious disease standard for respiratory disease. They have the bloodborne pathogen standard. But in California, uh, after the SARS, the original SARS outbreak in Toronto and Asia in 2003, there was, a, there was an interest from the healthcare employers and there were also concerns about TB. There was an interest from healthcare employers uh, on on doing something about fit testing and use of respirators because it was it, at that point it was new to many of those uh, healthcare sectors. And so mm -hmm. they came to Calosha and they asked, was there some way they could figure out a way to get some relief from fit testing requirements for respirators? And the Calosha mm -hmm. staff, to their great credit, they said, well, mm -hmm. they didn't just say no. They said maybe. But we need it in the context of a comprehensive infectious disease standard for infectious disease. <laughs> and, okay. and so what they then did is they pulled together stakeholders, and they have a process in California with a standards board that's really good. And so they pulled together with the Calosha staff, and they pulled together a, a, a meeting of, of healthcare and other employers that, would be, that might be affected, uh, uh, labor organizations of which I was working for the Service Employees International Union, uh, and community groups and public health folks. And they brought people together over several years and lots of meetings to talk about what might this standard look like. And um, mm -hmm. and they ultimately came out with a standard in May of 2009. Now, May of 2009 mm -hmm. was the, uh, May 21st was the date. Uh, it was my birthday, and I remember that forever. <laughs> and uh, I flew to San Diego where the standards board meeting was, and they were going to have their final vote with the board of the, it's a publicly appointed board by the governor with representatives across the, the uh, you know, employers, employees, public sector, uh, mm -hmm. public health. And so their board had to vote to adopt or not adopt the standard. And so we had, we had mm -hmm. heard lots of good, po everybody was feeling pretty good about the standard. And uh, there had been a lot of good compromise, like you need to get a standard passed. And essentially mm -hmm. what the standard did, uh, it was a little more than this, but essentially they took uh, they took a lot of the CDC guidance from 2007, which was the latest update on their infection control procedures for healthcare, and mm -hmm. they uh, they put those procedures, they put those CDC guidance, which are voluntary, into the occupational health framework of a standard, you know, written in the typical we we see standards, right, like the bloodborne pathogen mm -hmm. standard. So yep. there's an mm -hmm. there's an exposure control plan, and there's a section on PPE, and there's a section on 
on um, you know post exposure post exposure follow up yeah. and and <laughs> training education and record keeping you know a typical mm -hmm. standard that we in occupational health see, and so uh, but it was it, it was going to become mandatory so it would be the minimum requirements for all healthcare institutions in California, and it also covered nursing homes, uh, 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 um, public safety officials, police and fire department, paramedics you know EMTs, uh, it mm -hmm. covered. Uh, some high-risk populations like prisons and drug treatment centers and TB clinics and people that do um, public health people that do uh, outreach and testing, mm -hmm. which has been really helpful mm -hmm. for the pandemic because of all the testing that's going on. And so um, at that at that final standards board meeting, everybody I was never at an OSHA hearing like this. Everybody from from our side on the unions to uh, public health to the employers, all praised the state, all praised the staff. They, the staff got a standing ovation and it was passed, wow. and it was passed unanimously. Oh, wow. and, every, and what the employers all said was, we can do this because we already comply with CDC guidance and better. And so there's not a problem. This is fine. Uh -huh. okay. um, and so we, we got this occupational, so Cal OSHA got an occupational health standard that deals with droplet and airborne spread diseases that was became in effect during H1N1. It was in effect during Ebola. It covered Ebola. <laughs> it was in effect during various um, whooping cough and measles outbreaks they've had and other infectious disease outbreaks and tuberculosis. So it's been around over a decade and it's had an impact wow. on, uh, you know, it's not perfect like no standard is and employer compliance, you know, hasn't been perfect. But it's it's a good model, and it actually is the model for the draft federal OSHA infectious disease standard that's uh, currently kind of sitting out there, waiting. Hope we're hoping it'll go into effect at some point. And how long is it? How long have we been waiting on the federal end? Well, federal OSHA started working on their infectious disease standard about a year or two after Cal Cal OSHA finished their ATD standard. Okay. And okay, so, so eight or nine yeah, years. It's okay. gone through early regulatory process. It's gone through the small business Sabrifa process, and um, and from from what I've heard, it's not that far from being finished. If if there if the agency is simply told we need a standard and it'll be and you know it could be um, you know it could be Done. it could be out quickly and it would yeah. be out and and the 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 uh, the way it the way it's been talked about is it would be out as a temporary emergency standard quickly. With within a time frame for making it permanent, but the temporary emergency mm -hmm. standard would get us through the pandemic, and mm -hmm. then there could mm -hmm. be, you know, then there'd be more time to think about, okay, what worked, what mm -hmm. didn't work, how do we revise mm -hmm. it, how do we make it work better, and you know, yes. the hope would be it could be as successful as a bloodborne pathogen standard, which is, which in its thirty years in existence has had an amazing, amazing success at, at reducing yeah. uh, bloodborne pathogens, especially hepatitis B in healthcare workers from. We used to have 300 or more healthcare workers a year die from hepatitis B, and now almost nobody dies from hepatitis B in mm -hmm. healthcare. You know, mm -hmm. needle sticks mm -hmm. have been reduced, and lots of other positive. So I don't, I don't think anybody or few people in healthcare would say let's get rid of the bloodborne pathogen standard. But, but right. they didn't want it when it, you know, employers, you know, don't like standards, they don't like requirements, and so they, there was a lot of opposition to it. But now it's become, uh, it really transformed the industry. And Dr. Michaels, who was the head of OSHA under the last administration used to point to the bloodborne pathogen standard as, as the best example of OSHA driving a, a, a sector into better health and safety, and and really mm -hmm. driving the industry in a better direction. 
And I think a, yeah. a, a, a national infectious disease standard could do the same thing with, with all the issues we're running into uh, right now. Yeah, so... Yeah. Mark, how is the California standard working right now? I mean, are is it being is it being utilized? Yeah. Is it being enforced during yeah. this pandemic? What's happening? Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the frustrations I've had is is the standards on the books. It it covers um, the COVID nineteen as an airborne and droplet spread disease, and so there's a comprehensive standard. Employers are required to have a the covered employers, hospitals, nursing homes, others are required to have mm-hmm. a comprehensive exposure control plan that is sort of like the, you know, it's a the version of the plan like they have for bloodborne pathogens. So they mm-hmm. write their own site specific plan following the, the, the requirements of the standard and then they have to follow it. And then Fed, the mm-hmm. CalOSHA can then enforce that standard, you know, that they've written for themselves. Uh, the the downside is that since the pan, early in the pandemic, the governor of California put all the in, all the regulatory agencies in California on uh, voluntary compliance mode, which is not uncommon during disasters. OSHA, federal OSHA mm-hmm. has done it. Um, you know, state OSHA programs have done it. So, but but because of that, Cal OSHA is not focused on on uh, issuing citations. Their issue on trying to help employers meet the you know the ATD standard and other standards for the, for the pandemic. So many, yeah. unfortunately, many, many employers that I've talked with are ignoring the standard. And they're actually, uh, what they say is we're following CDC guidance or the World Health Organization guidance. And I always retort and say, well, that's fine as long as that guidance meets or exceeds the ATD standard. In most cases, mm-hmm. it doesn't. The The ATD standard mm-hmm. is, is has better protections for workers. But... You know, there are some employers who are trying to do the right thing, but the vast majority of them are are probably not as organizations. Part of that's driven by, uh, you know, the kind of overwhelming nature of the pandemic. Part of it's driven by the lack of of N95 respirators and other protective gear, the shortages that people run into or the blockages that people run into. Um, and so I, you know, uh, yeah, my hope is that I've been I've been pushing and working. We've been doing training with. Uh, with workers and, and unions about the standard. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think Kalosha is now actually gearing up to do, a, to do some more enforcement in the, in the more egregious situations where workers, healthcare workers have actually died because the standard wasn't being followed. Um, and so I, you know, hope I have is that when we get to the second wave, third wave, or further into this long pandemic, that, that there'll be better compliance and employers will, will look at the standard not as a burden, but as something that really gonna help them do better. Yeah. You know, and just for people listening who who aren't from California or maybe haven't heard of California's ATD standard, um, we'll include that in the show notes along with um, a guide that you've told me about, Mark, that's um, easy to consume, um, a little bit different than reading a regulation as well. So if if people want to see what's out there, they can. Um, A question for you. I, I guess, you know, if you want to comment, you had mentioned that um, Federal OSHA has the ability to put something together in an emergency situation, um, and they could in this regard, um, you know, with what they have got in draft. If safety and health professionals listening to this want to advocate for that, wh- where would they bring their voices? Well, I think I think the, the first place would bring it to your professional associations, because I think, I think okay. there's been some support among... The, the health and safety professional associations that there's a need for for OSHA to be doing more than they're doing, and mm-hmm. and having a you know having an infectious disease standard 
would set at least minimum guidance for employers like healthcare, food processing, others who never shut down. But with the reopening, yeah. you know, and all this massive, uh, you know, programs of trying to figure out how to reopen in the time of COVID, uh, to give some minimum guidance to employers would be would be really helpful. And you know, instead of everyone just sort of making everything up. And, you know, the, the thing I keep going back to is, you know, the CDC has been putting more guidance up on their website and some other federal agencies and some state health departments. But the problem is those are all voluntary. They're all guidances. So no, no yeah. employer has to follow those uh, mm -hmm. unless they want to. And so, uh, you know. It's like everything prior to 1970. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've, I've had times, mm -hmm. and you probably felt the same way in the past few months, where I, I think to myself, oh, this is what it was like before OSHA when employers didn't yeah. have minimum requirements and it was hard for us to push uh, push back. You know, whether you're a consultant or working on staff or, or working with a union, I mean, you're really facing trying to get the organization to do the right thing from a health and safety point of view. And as as much as we might not like or, or not think the OSHA standards are good enough in some areas, they were always a, a minimum floor that we could point to to at least push our profession and, and push the yeah. health and safety protections for workers. And that's really needed now with, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think back to, to the, the <laughs> fact that we have in this country some, we don't even have a good number for it, but it's been estimated between 500 and 1,000 healthcare workers have died from the COVID-19. I mean, wow. what type, of, what what type of occupational disease where that many workers are affected in such a short period of time, and there's essentially nothing or little done from federal OSHA. I mean, it's it's really as a as a, as a dramatic reaction. Yeah, absolutely. It's really stunning, and and to see, uh, you know, and it's not all employers, but to see many employers either ignore, you know, guidance that they know is out there. Uh, for whatever reason, they're deciding to do that or to have what I've been working more with some small employers or small businesses where they're really struggling because they don't have the expertise and experience. And so they really need those minimum guidances to help them get started. They don't really even know where to get started. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And if there's a framework, people should be able to have it and have access to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the other part is I, I, with the small businesses, I, you know, I like, they look at a lot of the checklists from CDC and I, I try to remind them that, that that's the minimum requirement that, that you could probably do better and do more and be more protective or be ready in case something changes in the future by mm -hmm. being, and, and, and build in the creativity of your own experience at your own, at the work site that you know so well, as opposed to mm -hmm. generic mm -hmm. guidance from CDC or someone else. And, and get them to think more creatively about that. Because I've seen that in my career be really where people move forward on safety and mm -hmm. health. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think a minimum standard would be a way to help get people further along. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And Mark, you've also been um, doing some some education rather around reopening um, with some smaller entities as well and trying to um, do some education with them. Can you talk about some of the things that you've been sharing? Yeah, I've, I've been uh, just through through um, through folks I've worked with over the years. I've you know, I'm getting pulled in like like most of us into questions about reopening and, and how to do, yeah. you know, how to use the hierarchy of controls in our profession to to think about that. But I've actually I actually had this really sort of interesting work that we've just we're just finishing is actually my wife and I 
my wife is an acupuncturist and she has a she's a sole practitioner she runs her own practice and 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 i'm in columbia maryland and mm -hmm. she works out of our home now she used to work out of a clinic um and so uh never expected our two professions would intersect but it turns out <laughs> with the reopening a lot of she closed her practice down early on and as did most of her colleagues and now with the reopening uh, across the country, a lot of her colleagues were starting to think about how to reopen. And uh, they were they were talking about their profession uh, being a low risk profession. And they were talking about using KN95 respirators as if they were real respirators. You know, we have all that controversy. Mm. So so um, so I ended up offering to um, to say I'd be off. I'd offer to volunteer to do. Uh, some training for a few people if they wanted to think about how we in occupational health do this. These are people that have never done occupational health work. They've not had to deal with these issues. You know, they're small. They might not know what OSHA is. Yeah, they're small businesses. <laughs> yeah. They're they're typically not covered yeah. by OSHA or they're less than 10 employees. But but they yeah. were interested because it's protecting their health and their patients. And so they, you know, their patients are important to them. And so, mm -hmm. uh, so I, 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 my wife put out on the listserv, we said, well, we'd be willing to do a class thinking maybe 10 or 15 people would say yes and we'd do something mm -hmm. informal. Well, two days later, over 100 people had signed up. And oh, so wow. we ended up doing a series of five, uh, five, five training courses, two and a half hours each over Zoom, which is, you know, has its own challenges. Uh, I got mm -hmm. support from one of the NIHS uh, worker training program grantees at, at UCLA, the Labor Occupational Health Program, was very generous. And they said, we, you know, we can support this work. And, you know, we, hmm. we're trying to do reopening and thinking about how to reopen. So this will, you know, this will be a useful kind of focused work. Uh, if you yeah, think about it, uh, acupuncturists are, are sort of an allied health profession. And there are mm -hmm. probably, you know, 15 or 20 million people who, who have small businesses or sole practitioners who do this kind of work. I mean, everybody from yeah. massage therapists to physical therapists right. and, you know, all sorts of, 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 of other professions where they mm -hmm. see people in a, you know, you know, in a close setting, they have small offices. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so it's, I do it myself, Mark, in my non-safety world as a Reiki practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So I'm yeah. listening. So, so, uh, and, and the, the goal was mm. not to, um, not to tell people whether they should open or not or how to how to do it. The goal was to explain from an occupational health point of view, given the experience of our profession. You know, we've we've helped yeah. industries from construction industries learning to deal with asbestos and and other chemical exposures. And, you know, and, you know, industrial industries had to deal with silica dust and these things that they hadn't dealt with in the past. So, so we had that experience kind of in a focused way. So, you know, I, I, I framed it around the, um, we framed the class around the hierarchy of controls and how to think mm -hmm. about layers of protection that you could figure out for your work site, uh, you know, with mm -hmm. engineering controls and then work practices and then PPE last and, and mm -hmm. how you could, so if you can't get N95s because they were in short supply, what could you do to reduce exposure to the aerosol spread in your, you know, by having fewer patients or using more rooms and fewer patients per room, how could you set up temporary ventilation between patients that might help clear out the space? Uh, you mm -hmm. know, all sorts of things that that people hadn't been thinking about. And so, yeah. Um, so we ended up doing these five classes. They were really wonderful. They were, you know, it, it you know, I, I felt bad at times because the practitioners didn't want to hear about aerosol spread because 
that was that was something they hadn't heard before, and that made this reopening harder. Uh, they yeah. wanted to hear that KN95 respirators from China were equal to N95. <laughs> yeah. uh, many yeah. of them had purchased those respirators from suppliers under the recommendation that they were respirators, but of course we know they're not. And so not, so I yeah. had to give people bad news. But what I really was encouraging is that people needed to be thinking and creative and that this was something that could be done. It was not easy. It took work and you have to practice and you have to be ready to revise and practice again. Um, mm -hmm. But but that, you know, you could do it, but you needed the framework to think about it. And I think the yeah. industrial hygiene hierarchy of control framework was perfect and it and it really resonated i've gotten a lot of good feedback from those practitioners who who now understand what the hierarchy of controls is who, who didn't <laughs> know what that was you know six weeks ago so that's so awesome so i i i'm um you know i i think it's an interesting model you know not just for the, the work that my wife does and and i'm an acupuncture patient so i would think about it as well i'm the patient i want you to be protected because i don't want you to make me sick right if i'm going to come see right you. exactly but mm -hmm. um and you at the reiki and your patients the same thing but you know i yeah. was really thinking that there really are a lot of people who are small businesses who are trying to think through these issues and what and so i was really trying to learn for myself what could lessons can i learn from this work with acupuncturists that I could broaden out to help other small businesses. And so, you know, I'm now, I'm now working with the, with the Loesch group at UCLA and, and others, and we're thinking about how to broaden out these principles and, and do this as part of the, of the work of our profession to help with the mm -hmm. reopening and if people are going to go down that road. And at some point, people right. are going to have, you know, everybody's probably going to reopen at some point before we have a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Well, how what a wonderful contribution that is. And I know you and I have talked about the possibility of perhaps maybe you'd be able to capture some of those best practices you're talking about um, as a guest blog that we'd be happy to happy to socialize to um, small businesses like you're talking about right now. I think that'd be I think that'd be a great contribution and help to people. Thank you, Joe. I'd be I'd be glad to do that. And 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 um, thank you for the offer. Yeah, you're welcome. Mark, this has been such a pleasure. And thank you for bringing, as you said, something positive to focus on. And the work that you're doing is definitely having an impact. And I'm sure people listening to this episode um, will be, you know, th these are things they hadn't thought of before, you know, and especially any audience, um, particularly in healthcare, who hasn't um, heard of elastomeric respirators before or didn't know that California has had a standard for 10 years that people could be using as a guide right now. Um, how powerful is that? And so um, I'll include I'll include that information in the show notes as well. Really appreciate it. And thank you for the tireless work. Um, after, after 40 years and you think maybe this is going to be the coast and all of a sudden it picks up speed like never before. Well, thank you, Jill. It's, it's, it's always wonderful to talk to you and, and sort of talk about these, these issues. And, uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be happy when the pandemic's over and we're past this and we can all go back to quote unquote normal. And I can go back to my <laughs> historical film channel and just, just kind of work on history of our profession. Uh, in, absolutely. And there's going to be a lot. Yeah. There'll be a lot more history to talk about after this as well. Yeah, yeah. And my my great mm -hmm. admiration for everybody, all of your your listeners who are working mm -hmm. in this field, either in healthcare or in safety and health, that are working so hard on doing this. So stay safe and and keep up the good work, everybody. It's so important these days. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. 
And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. And if you're not subscribed yet and want to hear past or future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player that you'd like. You can also find all of our episodes at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps connect the show with more and more safety and health professionals like Mark and I. If you'd like a suggestion for a guest, including if it's you, you can contact me and make that suggestion at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. Until next time, thanks for listening.